Papa Was a Preacher by Eileen Porter, read by Amy Zook on Anchor from Grandma's Bookshelf. Remember the Sabbath day. What is your formula for successful preaching, Brother Jones? A member of the white race once asked a renowned black person. Well, sir, came his reply. I always make three points. Firstly, I tells them I'm going to tell them. Secondly, I tells them. And thirdly, I tell them I've done tell them. That was a description of our family's three-point observation of the Sabbath. On Saturday, we remembered to remember the Sabbath day. On Sunday, we remembered. And on Monday, we remembered that we had remembered. The most important day of the week is Saturday. If there be those who deny this, go mark them well. They have never lived in a parsonage. Since Sunday was the day around which our career in common revolved, it took a great preparation to do the day justice, and Saturday was the eve. From six o'clock in the morning until midnight, the day was foreordained to be an exclusive pursuit of getting ready for Sunday. Promptly after morning prayer and breakfast, Papa went to his study at the church to prepare the sermon for Sunday. Hugh and Cecil set out with broom and dust cloths to shine the church for Sunday. Ed and Jeanette set in with broom and mop to polish the house for Sunday. Raybon took down the ironing board to press the clothes for Sunday. Gil stayed on duty to answer phone calls concerning Sunday. Candler and I skimmed over the dishes and bounced outdoors to store up play to tide us over Sunday. And Mother took down the pots and pans to prepare the food for Sunday. Like Siamese twins, the church and parsonage were ever side by side. And as Papa sat in his study concentrating on Sunday's sermon, into his thoughts filtered the buzzing of his swarm of bees. The yodeling of Hugh and Cecil echoed through the emptiness of the church, the rhythmic knocking of the broom handle contacting church pews, the whoops and shouts of our gang playing Indian in the backyard, the robust whistling of Ed as he cleaned the house, the incessant ringing of the telephone, and the aroma of pies and cakes emulating from the kitchen. It all registered in the study. Proof of it came one Saturday morning when I became incensed at the action of a playmate. Standing beneath Papa's window, I unwisely dared to shout, I'll be John Brown! The moment it was out, grave doubts assailed me. We were not allowed to give vent to our emotions with violent language. Mother reminded us, and as he knew not what to say, he swore. And Papa placed a penalty on every step from the path of pure speech. His nearest approach to profanity was a disapproval-laden shh, and this he used to convey extreme annoyance, disgust, or denunciation. But this he also used with different intonations or facial expressions to show embarrassment, approval, or delight. The barometer of Papa's reaction to any situation lay in the force and tone of his shh. With, I'll be John Brown, I had put my foot into it. On its heels came a vigorous shh through the window, and at the door came Papa. He took me by the arm into the house where Mama washed the flour from my hands and the soap washed the profanity from my mouth. For the next two hours, I sat quietly in a chair by Papa, feeling that I was a transgressor most unworthy. The I'll be John Brown mode of speech was thereafter reserved for days when Papa's Sunday sermon did not station him in the study. So jealous were Candler and I of Gill's important position as custodian of doorbell and telephone that our Saturday morning play was interspersed with giving false alarms at the front door. We were especially envious at the telephone conversations. Like every parsonage telephone, ours was afflicted with chronic ringinitis, suffering a severe attack every Saturday requiring the constant attention of one person. Gil wore his appointment with a superior air. One day Ed remarked, Gil, you're a regular Bureau of Information. This sounded impressive and Gil lost no opportunity ever after to remind us that he and no other was the hero of information. One Saturday morning when Mother happened to be in the front of the house entertaining morning callers, 
Gil came in saucer-eyed. Mother, he said in awe, come to the back door. On the step is an angel unawares. Candler and I crowded past Mother as she walked through the kitchen to see the visitor. It loomed in the doorway, more unaware than angel. The only halo was a fringe of matted hair, and the only robe was a covering of faded, tattered denim. Out of the toothless mouth, encompassed with a grisly beard, came an unangelic mumble. Morning, kind lady. Can you spare a hungry man a bite to eat? His nearest approach to the celestial came with a shy radiance which filled his being at the sight of the wedge of apple pie and the cup of steaming coffee handed to him by mother. Angels unaware, we taunted Gil. That's just another hobo. But Gil's Sunday school teacher had drawn upon his mind the vision of an angel under every bundle of rags. Hobos seemed to grow on trees in the small towns where we lived, and a slight puff of wind would drop one on our doorstep. The wind was always high on Saturday mornings, strangely coincidental with Mother's baking. Being servants of the Lord, we could never deny loaves and fishes to our fellow men, however multitudinous they might become. Saturday morning chores were finished and dinner was over by one o'clock. The buzz of morning hours subsided into a low hum as the four older boys left for their jobs of delivering groceries or mowing lawns. As Jeanette took over the ironing, as Papa left for town to get his hair cut, buy groceries, and mingle with the Saturday crowd, and his mother sat down with her mending to catechize us younger children on the Sunday school lesson. If we had already learned it, oh, ecstasy, two of us might go with Papa. We would swing patiently one to each of his hands, our short steps trying to keep pace with his long-legged stride. At the square, while Papa got his hair cut, we would sometimes sit with little friends from the country in a wagon hitched in the center of the activity. Then we would accompany Papa on his journey around the business quadrangle. Our progress was like the proverbial frog trying to get out of the well, hopping one foot up and falling two feet back, as Papa would take a step and then fall back into conversation. How are you, Brother Haskins, he would say, and are the children all well? How is your wife? And adding a few more pleasantries about the crops and the weather, we would move on apace, only to be stopped. Howdy, preacher, would come a friendly voice from another direction. We would get all set for another pause. There was nothing to do but stand first on one foot and then on the other, or entertain each other by making funny faces. Papa's inevitable hopeful hint, I'll see you at church in the morning, was the indication that now we could be moving on. The final stop in town was at the grocery store, where in addition to last-minute supplies for Sunday, Papa bought 25 cents worth of mixed candy. When at 5 o'clock he stepped through the door at home, he was greeted with whoops of joy and followed to the front bedroom. There he dumped the candy into the middle of the bed, and as we stood about, his voice in doting tones called our names while he distributed the sweets. This is for you, Jeanette. Save this for Ed. Here's your gills. And down down the line, showing no partiality, even to the baby. No candy was ever so delicious, and no window display of sweets on any city street has ever held the charm of that front room bed. After that, everybody, in high mood, helped with supper. It had to be dispensed with in short order. Cleanliness was next to godliness, and 11 o'clock Sunday morning had to see the entire family, seven masculine members and three feminine ones, shining and clean, in best bib and tucker, seated in church. Before that coat of sheen, however, came the matter of baths, and as the boys grew older, shaves. Papa was firm that there would be no baths and no shaves on Sunday, and the Sabbath began exactly at the stroke of midnight. With the swallowing of the last supper crumb, the cleaning process began. Baths were taken in order of age, beginning with Candler, the baby, that he might be in bed first. That left the older boys free to turn the ice cream freezer for Sunday's dessert or to witness weddings. It left Papa free to the last to see that the midnight law was observed to perform any unexpected weddings and to polish our shoes. 
We wore black shoes, for obvious reasons. Bathroom bound on Saturday night, we deterred by the way of the kitchen to leave them. There Papa was settled with a giant bottle of shoe polish and a preoccupied look. Passing through the hall, we could hear him accenting the scripture with a whip of the shine cloth. And by midnight, ready for Sunday, the kitchen floor exhibited a glossy display to make a shoe shop green with envy. Boots, boots, exactly ten pairs of them. Come the Sabbath, the day for which such painstaking preparation had been made, Papa rose at an unearthly hour to go over his sermon, to meditate, and to hide the funny papers. He was a follower of the cartoons, but they did not show their faces before his eyes on the Sabbath. The reading of them was deferred, for himself and for us, until Monday morning, though they were sometimes accidentally discovered and surreptitiously read. We were called exactly 30 minutes earlier on Sunday than the usual time for getting up. Instead of the often heard phrase, crawl out, Papa's signal was expressed, come crawling. Each morning he went first to the door of the older boys' room. Hugh, Cecil, Raybon, Ed, he called in one breath, come crawling, and then on to our door. Jeanette, Aileen, in a slightly modified tone, come crawling, and at the last bedroom, Gil and Candler come crawling. One Saturday night, Cecil suggested to each one of us that when Papa delivered his next get-it-up call, we respond immediately, collectively, and literally. The next morning, we were in readiness. Hugh, Cecil, Raybon, and Ed, Papa began in the usual manner. We lay in the stillness before action until the final note. Gil and Candler come crawling. Then, as if shot from so many guns, the eight of us came rolling from our beds to the floor, and on hands and knees, in pajamas and nightgowns, crawled noisily into the hall and closed in on Papa. He stood in the middle of a clamoring mob. Shh, he said as if embarrassed, you got me that time, grin. Mother, he called out, I wish you'd come look at your children. After Sunday breakfast, Papa distributed the money for our offering. One-tenth of his week's salary had been changed into dimes and quarters for that purpose. If the boys were working, it was taken for granted that they would pay their own tithe. Pennies and nickels were never taken to church. They were useful for buying soda pop and chewing gum, but for the Lord, they were not enough. When the collection plate glided past with pennies and nickels conspicuous among its treasures, I used to wonder who could have been so calloused as to offer such an insult to the Lord. But search as I might the congregation, no telltale expression lingered on any face. While we were dressing for Sunday school, one of the boys would be sent to the church to ring the bell. That was for other people. We needed no bell. We had Papa. He went about the house giving time warnings. Only 15 minutes till Sunday school time, children. Mother, it's nearly Sunday school time. And the final call. Only five minutes. All out. An honest confession is good for the soul. As a child, I was not interested in Sunday school. To be sure, when the roll was called each Sunday, my body was present, but my mind was still with Alice in Wonderland or whoever might be doing exciting things. It did not occur to me that Sunday school, too, could be interesting. Somehow it was my lot to always be in the classes taught by elderly women. They were sweet and good, and I respected them. I took for granted that when one became elderly, she would naturally be saintly and would know the Bible cover to cover. For myself, it was unnecessary that I think on these things until the white snow of age should sprinkle my hair. Then I, too, would teach a class of little girls about Moses and the bulrushes. Of course, mother was good and was still young, but that was different. She was a preacher's wife. When I was 10, however, and we moved to a city pastorate, I had an inner revolution. The first Sunday, when I was shown to the little classroom where sat a dozen girls my age, I was as usual prepared to think my own thoughts during the lesson period. But here was a picture to make me stop short and leave all prearranged thoughts behind. Seated at the table as one of the class was a young woman of not more than 22. 
She was gowned in modest dark dress, simply accented by a single strand of pearls. Her hat was of harmonizing color with the dress. Her arms were encased from elbow to wrist in fashionable white kid gloves. And through dark laughing eyes shone a gay spirit. She was vibrant. She was poised. She was beautiful. Could anybody so young and so full of glory of living actually enjoy Sunday school? There was all the evidence. Maybe there was more to all this than I had thought. For the next three years, my incentive for going to Sunday school was not to swell the attendance, not to learn the Ten Commandments, but to strive towards a pattern which to my little girl's eyes was perfection and which was ever before me in the person of Kate Tansley. Each Sunday at 11 o'clock service, as the choir filed in singing, Holy, 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 Papa seated himself in the pulpit chair and went through a roll call of our pew in his mind. Unless some catastrophe prevented, he saw six boys in white starched shirts and creased trousers, two girls with curled hair and ruffled dresses, and Mother looking as fresh and lovely as a flower which unfailingly graced her shoulder. Mother sat next to the aisle, probably better to establish the eye-to-eye -eye contact with Papa. Throughout the sermon, in her own way, she would send messages in code to him. A certain glint of the eye meant, brush your hair down. Papa would get the hint, and both hands would cooperate in a furtive hair-smoothing. A tilt of Mama's head meant, you're preaching well, I'm proud of you, and Papa's head would lift two inches as his words leaped over each other in joyful expression. A straight-from-the-eye gaze warned, you're preaching too long, at which Papa would close his Bible and make one long slide to the benediction. After church, there was a half hour or so of mingling with friends. During that time, Raybon was addicted to going up and down the aisles saying, come home with us to dinner. Those he invited invariably accepted, and Mother greeted them as long-expected and at last arrived guests. Rural members of the church usually saw to it that the festive board at the parsonage yielded up fried chicken on Sunday, but fried chicken without gravy and hot biscuits is like a preacher minus hymn book and Bible, so Mother properly trimmed the chicken with boats of cream gravy and plates of biscuits. There was always ten of us, and from two to six guests at dinner. When dinner was over, we moved into the living room. Skates, bicycles, and games were of no avail on Sunday, but within the pale of permitted pleasures was the making of music. Ragtime melodies were banned, that still left folk music and sentimental popular songs. The family orchestra included, besides the piano, a xylophone, a violin, a guitar, and eight strong voices. Everybody performed, individually and collectively, guests included. One church Sunday, when the church pianist had stayed with us and we were comfortably launched into our musical afternoon, Papa turned to her. Katie, he asked, wouldn't you play for us? This particular moment had been anticipated by Cecil and Raybon earlier in the day. They plotted with Katie that when Papa's request came, she should comply by playing the latest song craze, 12th Street Rag, calling it by another name. I'd love to, she sweetly consented and seated herself at the piano. This is a new song, she said, Joy in My Heart, and she began to play at first she touched the keys lightly, but gradually gathered momentum, and eventually letting herself go, she pounded out 12th Street Rag with all the abandoned of a nightclub entertainer. We sat attentively listening, none daring to look at Papa. Our thoughts were busy imagining what he was thinking of what the passerbys were thinking of such goings-on in the parsonage. When Katie thumped out the last jazzy notes, there was a pin-dropping silence as we turned our eyes towards Papa. But there was no trace of disapproval on his countenance and no shh upon his lips. That's wonderful, he exclaimed and settled back into his chair. Play it again. Katie repeated her performance, not once but twice. Through the stillness of the Sunday afternoon, continued 
the peeled forth of Twelfth Street rag, a ragweed by which was sweeter by another name. Remember the Sabbath day. Our attitude towards this observant was unconsciously expressed by Candler when he was six. One afternoon he was riding with Papa and Mother. "'Oh, look at the sheep, Mother!' he exclaimed, pointing across her face. "'Yes, son,' she said, gently putting his arm into his lap. A few minutes later he pointed again. "'Look at the windmill, Mother!' he shouted. "'Yes, dear, I see,' said Mother, again lowering his arm. A third time his, he shot an arm across her face. "'Oh, look, Mother!' he cried. Patience exhausted, she took hold of his arm. "'Son,' she said firmly, "'you must not point.' "'Why not, Mother?' he innocently asked. "'It's not Sunday, is it?'